Greetings and welcome to my podcast, Algonquin Defining Moments. This is your host, Gay Clemson, oral history author, storyteller, and lover of all things Algonquin Park. As you know, I've researched and written extensively over the last 20 years about the human history of Algonquin Park, which I'm really having fun sharing with you. Before I begin, I wanted to remind everyone that all of my books, as well as those by my friend and fellow Algonquin Park human historian, Roderick Mackay, are all available through the Friends of Algonquin Park bookstores and at Amazon. On my website, www.algonquinparkheritage.com, on the Pics and Vids page, I've posted selections from my library of historical photographs of people and places that I talk about in these podcasts, which I hope you will find of interest. As I mentioned before, I also strongly encourage everyone to lend their financial support to the Wildlife Research Station, whose information can be found on their website, www.algonquinwrs.ca, and consider buying an Algonquin Defining Moments t-shirt, coffee cup, or other merch by clicking on the Gifts and Gears buttons on my website. If you have any ideas of topics that you think would be fun to explore or just want to share your sentiments about my podcasting efforts, please feel free to email me at clemsong at algonquinparkheritage.com. In these first four episodes of What Good is a Wolf, I focused on two groundbreaking and myth-busting periods of wolf research. These included the original 1958-1962 work of the late Douglas Pimlott and John and Mary Thaberge's 12-year follow-on study that ran from 1987 to 1999. One of the jaw-dropping realizations of Thaberge's radio telemetry and field-based research work was that under certain winter weather conditions, Algonquin Park's deer were all migrating out of the park. With most going to a 150-square-kilometer deer yard centered on Round Lake in the southeast corner. This, in turn, was triggering many of Algonquin's wolves to follow and concentrate in this same area. Unfortunately, these wolves' desire for deer outweighed their normally cautionary approach to humans and roads, resulting in a significant number of Algonquin's small wolf population being killed by humans. Though the Thaber's research was controversial at the time, it did eventually inform an important policy change in 2004, that of banning the hunting of wolves in all adjacent townships around the park. In the world of wildlife conservation, this was a watershed event, the first time in North America and likely the world that an at-risk population was protected outside of park boundaries. Now, we all, of course, hoped that that would be the end of the story, that wolves and humans would find a way to make an uneasy truce, and we'd all live happily ever after together. Alas, it's a lot more complicated than that. And in this episode, I'm really pleased to have with me today Dr. John Benson, who, under the direction of Dr. Brent Patterson from Trent University, picked up the Algonquin Park Wolf Research Baton in 2007 as part of his Ph.D. studies. Welcome, John, to Algonquin Defining Moments. It's a pleasure to meet you, and thank you so much for joining me today. Yeah, thanks. Thanks for having me. It's uh, great to be with you. So I thought that maybe one of the things we could start with that I'm really curious about is how on earth you went from studying red foxes in the Sierras to studying bears in Louisiana to ultimately end up in my stomping grounds of Algonquin Park and studying wolves. I didn't even know Louisiana had any bears. Yeah, so it's been quite the kind of wildlife adventure journey for me over the last probably 20 or so years. And it's, yeah, it's been, been a ton of fun. It's taken me to a bunch of really cool places, a couple of which you mentioned. Um, so the Red Fox work in the Sierras, studying the Sierra, actually it was in, it wasn't really in the Sierras, it was more in the Cascades where I was near Mount Lassen, but that was my first carnivore field job. And I was being paid $2 an hour to track Red Foxes, uh, but it was well worth it. Uh, beautiful area and a really cool project. Um, I actually think had the same reaction you did to Louisiana black bears. I don't think I knew they had bears down there. And in fact, they didn't have a lot of them. 
at the time they were the only uh, federally listed black bears in the United States. They were a, a unique subspecies, the Louisiana black bear that was on the endangered species list. We were doing a reintroduction project and yeah, you know, you don't really think of bears when you think of Louisiana, but when you see them down in the swamps and the hardwood forests, they actually fit right in there and made a lot of sense. And it was an amazing project. The last stop, big stop before I went up to Ontario was studying Florida panthers. I was a state research biologist for the state of Florida. Oh, wow. And we were That's studying huge. highly endangered Florida panthers. So another hot, buggy, swampy environment, but a really fascinating project. And we'll go into the details and a lot of you probably already know, but some really interesting interactions between genetics and sort of survival and reproduction and behavior for, for panthers, kind of like what I ended up doing up in Ontario with the Eastern wolves and the coyotes. So that kind of set me up pretty well. I was in between my master's and PhD, knew I wanted to do a PhD. Brent Patterson, who ended up being my PhD advisor, the Ontario Provincial Wolf Research Leader, put a posting on a job board for a PhD position studying hybridization between wolves and coyotes in and around Algonquin. I applied, went up and visited, and really certainly fell in love. I got to visit Algonquin. Uh, it snowed while I was there. Kind of fell in love with Algonquin, but also just was incredibly fascinated by the idea of trying to understand this hybridization between wolves and coyotes and you know if you're going to do a phd four or five years you want it to be something that captures you and captivates you and um, i had some other options but that question of why do they hybridize and what are the implications really got me so yeah that's why i went up and did it wow so tell me as i think i mentioned you know i lived in uh, every summer uh, in Algonquin Park for 60 some odd years and heard wolves, but never saw one. But I wondered, I mean, you you got really close to them, right? And you actually touched them. What was that like? Yeah, it was pretty cool. I'd, I'd never seen a wolf before I went up there. So uh, really exciting for me. And certainly, yeah, a lot of my interactions were kind of cheating, whether I was trapping them or seeing them from a helicopter airplane when I was tracking them. But I had a couple of funny stories like my so my brother came out to visit and independently my parents came up to visit and then there was one time I took my girlfriend up there and they were all there for I guess less than one day and we saw a wolf in each just like randomly not I wasn't tracking them I wasn't catching them so it was my brother it was actually the craziest sighting we were walking we only had about four hours and we were thinking, should we do a canoe trip or, you know, just a little John on a canoe or a hike? We ended up doing a hike right out of the wildlife research station. And I don't know if you know that cabin that you can hike to, but we were almost to the cabin. And I, we were kind of joking, like, you know, we'll probably see a wolf. And I knew we probably wouldn't. And all of a sudden, these two wolves were running straight down the trail at us, full speed and, and kind of something crazy in their eyes. Um, and usually, you know, that doesn't happen for a lot of reasons, but usually they know we're there before we know they're there. But I could tell just from seeing them, they they were like involved in something. And I never, yeah, they got so close. Finally, I was like, all right, I guess I better let them know I'm here. So I, I just kind of yelled out like, hey. And when I did, their faces changed and they both darted off to either side of the trail. Um and and then they were gone i watched one of them run through the woods until it disappeared my brother was blown away and i think he had the idea that you know that kind of thing happened every day or something but uh <laughs> we, <great. laughs> we were pretty excited um i won't bore you with the other stories but yeah it seemed like every time i brought someone close to me up there that had never been there they saw a wolf so maybe you and i'll have to go up someday all right now is their fur soft to touch Relatively not as soft as maybe like a, I guess a cat or something like that. But yeah, it's it's relatively soft. I never really thought about it. I guess. <laughs> neat, neat, neat. So tell one of the things I'm really interested in knowing about is exactly how you did your research. Yeah, might be worth just yeah quickly, yeah talking about why we did it, and then I'll explain the approach. 
So the backdrop of the work is really that, you know, some a lot of genetic work had been done in and around Algonquin and people had figured out that wolves and coyotes were hybridizing and figured out this idea of the Eastern wolf. But really nothing was known beyond what you can learn from genetics that it was happening, but we didn't know anything about why it happened or the implications. So the basic question of our work and my work as a, as a PhD student with Brent Patterson was to try to understand the ecological mechanisms underlying hybridization and the consequences for behavior and population dynamics of both wolves and coyotes. And given that there was all this conservation concern about Eastern wolves, trying to figure out what it meant for the potential for this small population to expand outside of the park. And so what was really exciting to me is we took a really comprehensive approach. And as a PhD student, you know, I wanted to study everything. I wanted to learn everything. And we, you know, we addressed genetics, behavior, um, demography in terms of survival and reproduction. And so, yeah, just getting to look at all those different um, implications and consequences of hybridization and just basic wolf and coyote ecology was, was really a lot of fun. And the approach was, it took a lot of time, but it was really simple in, in a sense. What we did is what I did, I was up there, I lived just west of Algonquin or just west of Huntsville. So a little bit west of Algonquin for almost four years. And I spent virtually every day in the field. And the main thing I guess that I did was catch wolves, coyotes, and hybrids. So I'd go out and trap canids, uh, basically spring till late fall. Any night that it wasn't freezing, I could, I could have my traps out. And then you never knew what you were gonna get. It was you know either a big wolf, small coyote, and, and everything in between. And the two important things I did when I caught an animal was put a radio collar of some sort on it so we could track it track its survival, understand its behavior, its movements, and then get a DNA sample. And so we could figure out what it was. And, you know, obviously some of them were wolves, some were coyotes and some were hybrids. And so then we could link their genetic ancestry and what they were genetically to what they were doing behaviorally, how well they were surviving and reproducing, um, and really start to understand those practical and ecological implications. Now, was this all over the park or just in certain areas? Yeah, so the study area was Algonquin Park and actually a, a pretty big area to the west, mostly wildlife management unit 49, which is basically, uh, well, management unit 50 as well, which is um, basically the part, the western park boundary all the way to Perry Sound and Georgian Bay and, and Lake Huron there mm -hmm. um, at Perry Sound. And so, yeah, I spent as much time working and studying with canids outside of the park in that western area as I did in Algonquin Park. And that really allowed us to make comparisons about the differences of these canids and hybridization with and without a lot of human disturbance. And that was actually a really informative way to do it. And, and the areas that you described that were outside the park, those were ones that lived there or were coming from the park into that area and going back? Yeah, no. So resident, we tracked resident animals in outside of the park that lived completely outside of the park and ones that lived inside of the park. Um, basically, every spot on the landscape is covered by some type of canid territory, whether it's a wolf, coyote, or a hybrid. When we started the work, we assumed, well, we didn't really know to what extent there'd be wolves outside of the park. And it, it turned out, you know, that in the park, it's dominated by wolves and, and eastern wolves are the most common canid inside Algonquin. Outside of the park, it was a pretty diverse mix of wolves, coyotes, and hybrids. So we did have some eastern wolves and other wolf types living outside of Algonquin completely. Um, but we also had a lot more coyotes, whereas in the park, there's very few coyotes and a lot more hybridization outside of the park. Yeah, yeah. So what did you, what were sort of some of your high level conclusions? Oh, um, that was probably the kind of, for the, maybe the highest level is just the difference in genetic structure and the genetic ancestry of the, the local animals. So again, high proportion of the resident animals in Algonquin for Eastern wolves, very, very few coyotes, although we did catch a, a few coyotes um, 
in the in the park. Outside, again, that diverse mix. So wolves, coyotes, hybrids, sometimes in the same pack, sometimes in different packs. The hot, maybe the highest level of conservation finding was just that, unfortunately, under the current landscape conditions, environmental conditions, and management conditions, it seems like a pretty tough road to expect eastern wolves to expand geographically and numerically outside of the protected area of Algonquin. So they do really well in Algonquin and they're holding strong there. That is the, the stronghold, but outside they become very rare, patchily distributed. They don't survive very well and they just don't get all that far from, from Algonquin far. And so why do you think that is? Yeah, it's a kind of a multifaceted problem couple of things that we learned that, that make a lot of sense in terms of why they don't get that far. One is that they're, so they're very low density outside of the park, as I mentioned, and then they do disperse out from Algonquin. And so you have wolves moving into this unprotected landscape adjacent to the park, but you can legally, certainly during my study and, and still to today in many places, you can legally shoot and trap canids and so there's higher human cause mortality. And one of the things we found was that for whatever reason, Eastern wolves outside of the park were more likely to die, that they had poorer survival than the other canids outside of the park. They were living side by side. So the conditions were the same. And yet for some reason, the Eastern wolves survived quite poorly, about 40% annually. Whereas the other canids, the coyotes, the hybrids, and the sort of admixed gray wolves survived higher at maybe um, anywhere from 60 to, to over 70 percent. Mm -hmm. So that lower survival, when you're already at low density, makes it difficult, number one, just to rise up in density, but number two, you can imagine eastern wolf disperses out from the park, not a lot of other eastern wolves around, so that doesn't lead to a lot of eastern wolf on eastern wolf reproduction, so to speak, or population growth for eastern wolves. When they do breed outside of the park, it's usually not with another eastern wolf because they just aren't that many there. So that exacerbates hybridization and leads to hybrids rather than, than highly assigned eastern wolves outside of the park. Those are some of the, the big reasons. So it's really this kind of interaction between human-caused mortality and hybridization that really seems to limit them to the areas in the park and just around the park. Hmm. So, so one of the things that I got out of John Saberge's work was that it seemed like, from a territorial perspective, coyotes like a certain kind of territory and eastern wolves like a completely different kind of territory. Did you find that to be true as well? Yeah, in a sense. So, broad strokes, you know, you could, in, you sort of could find both types, and we did find them in any scenario. But more often we found, as you might expect, we found the wolves in more remote areas with fewer humans and fewer roads and higher densities of large prey like moose. And we found coyotes in areas that were more dominated by humans had, had a lot more roads. Um, again, there were exceptions. So we had wolves living in, in areas with a lot of humans. We had coyotes living in pretty remote areas. But generally across the landscape, you could, fair degree of success, you could predict the ancestry of the local canids by the landscape conditions relative to prey and humans. Mm. And, and was, was it typically a case, and I know this is probably an unanswerable question, but you know, is it typically that an Eastern wolf would join a coyote pack, a coyote pack? Or was it that it would be a single, coyote that would come across a single eastern wolf and then they would create something new somewhere else? Yeah, good question. Um, so in terms of the actual formation of the packs, hard thing to study and we don't know exactly how it all came together. Often we just sort of, you know, encounter a pack, maybe capture it, get some genetics and start to figure out who they were and what and what they were doing. But one thing I'll say is that even though clearly uh, for hybridization to have occurred, wolves and coyotes at some point and probably continually are directly breeding. But most of the hybridization I documented in the packs that we saw were either 
you know, you definitely had packs that were all wolves or packs that were all coyotes. Then we had a lot of packs that had wolves and hybrids in it. And we had packs that were coyotes and hybrids in it. It was very rare to have, you know, say a breeding male Eastern wolf and a breeding female Eastern coyote or something like that. Typically it was more like one bump down the chain where you'd have a wolf with a hybrid or a coyote with a hybrid. And this hybridization is a continuum, right? It's, it, I mean, I'm assuming that a pure coyote, you know, teaming up with a pure Eastern wolf is going to have 50-50 of everything. So what kind of sort of continuum did you end up seeing? Yeah, it's, it's kind of complicated, a bit of a mess, and, and in some ways a matter of perspective. Um, I think we all want genetics to be a very hard science and a kind of a black and white scenario, but without getting into all the details, I'll just say that it, it definitely isn't. Um, and, and like a lot of things, the decisions you make about the models that you use to understand these processes influence what you're going to get out of them. But to, to come back to earth a little bit on that question, one thing that's important to note is we're not sure that there's any pure wolves or coyotes in the Algonquin region. There's been so much hybridization for a fairly long period of time that it's probably fair to assume that most animals are admixed to some level and probably have genetic ancestry from more than one group. That said, I think one of the kind of refreshing or surprising things that we found, a lot of people had taken that to an extreme and you know they called the Algonquin area canid soup and they essentially thought they're all hybrids and it's just a big mess and you know you can't tell one from the other. Um, that's not what we found. So we certainly found again that probably there was some level of admixture in most animals, but there was a lot of animals that were highly assigned to eastern wolves or highly assigned to coyotes. So they were mostly wolves or coyotes. And, and you could actually, just from me catching them with a fair degree of certainty, I could usually predict pretty well about what they were going to come out in terms of their genetics. So the hybrids though were about what you'd expect too. They were intermediate between wolves and coyotes. And you'd certainly see, you know, features from both. You'd see the long, kind of the long muzzles and the pointy ears on a coyote, but it would have kind of a bigger body, maybe a bigger head and bigger paws of a wolf. So hmm. interesting. So in the last episode, I shared a lot about the initial discovery of the extent of the deer migration during the winter and talk in some of that research about spatial segregation, which I really didn't understand what they were talking about. So I wondered if you could just educate us a little bit about, you know, what that segregation's, you know, all about and what the implications are moving forward. Yeah, sure. So spatial segregation and territoriality is is really a unique a pretty unique element of the wolf coyote system in Algonquin in the Algonquin region. And so most places that wolves and coyotes exist in North America, mm -hmm. so you know mostly we're talking about western North America and we're talking about gray wolves which is you know which are larger wolves than than eastern wolves. And we're talking about western coyotes which are smaller coyotes than our eastern coyotes in Ontario. And in those systems in the West, they're spatially, they spatially overlap. And what that means is basically you've got generally big wolf territories. And within each wolf territory, there's often multiple coyote territories living right amongst the wolves. And so coyotes are territorial with other coyotes, and they don't overlap in terms of their home ranges and territories. And wolves are territorial with other wolves. But wolves and coyotes overlap to a high degree in space. Not the case in Algonquin. In Algonquin, what we found is they're actually, and the adjacent areas, so right around the park as well, we found that wolves and coyotes are territorial with each other. And not just wolves and coyotes, no matter what the ancestry of the canids was, hybrids, wolves, coyotes, a mix of both, all canid packs are territorial with each other. So whereas out west you have coyotes living amongst these larger wolf territories, they're spatially segregated in the Algonquin region. Why is that? We think it's a couple of things. Most obviously, I think the, the greater similarity in body size, so smaller wolves and larger coyotes, probably means that they're competing more strongly for food resources. 
And the implication of that is that, you know, why would you be territorial at all? Well, to protect the resources in your territory so that others wouldn't eat them. So probably that's, that's a lot of what's driving it. The other thing is it's a hybrid zone. So in addition to competing for food, wolves and coyotes are probably competing for mating opportunities with each other. And so that higher degree of competition leads to territoriality across species rather than just within species. Really interesting. The only other place that, that we think that happens is probably in North Carolina with red wolves and coyotes. And, and for the same reasons, that's the only other system that we're aware of where wolves and coyotes readily hybridize and where, yeah, they'd be more similar in body size. So it's, it's actually funny that the paper we did on that phenomenon ended up in my dissertation and was in some ways one of the more interesting things we did. And it really came about because I was having a hard time explaining our system in other papers to the wolf world at large because they were all hung up on the Western system. And so for instance, we documented that Eastern coyotes in Ontario occasionally kill adult moose, which is not known elsewhere. And when I tried to publish that, the, the response I got from a very well-known wolf researcher who was the editor was, no, we don't, we don't really believe you. You know, we think that the, basically we think your coyotes are scavenging from the resident wolf pack. And I had actually, to my defense, I had mentioned it in the paper, but it hadn't really sunk in. And I was thinking, well, that's crazy because they're completely spatially segregated. There is no resident wolf pack. They're living in their own territory and they're killing the moose within it. So I was all fired up and thinking I would just make a big appendix where I would show that. And my advisor, you know, calmly said, yeah, that, that's a good idea. Maybe a better idea is why don't you publish that as a paper? And so that's really where the idea came from. And, and uh, yeah. But do, but coyotes don't catch moose, do they? Yeah, they do occasionally in Ontario. Is the, okay. It's the only place it's been documented, not to say that it doesn't happen elsewhere, but one of the things I did was go in on clusters of GPS telemetry locations to find what, what the canids were eating. And quite quickly, I started to realize that, yeah, occasion, not, not as much as wolves by any means, and probably the situation had to be right. You know, in some cases, the, the moose may have been injured or just you know nutritionally stressed or something like that but i found quite quickly that occasionally these eastern coyotes were capable of killing adult moose hmm. never would have thought that that's interesting yeah. that's interesting so of course they're, they're huge as you probably know from seeing they're huge coyotes in ontario not not the same as kind of a smaller western coyote but yeah so at the end of the sort of 1999, you know, early 2000s research, there were only three townships outside the park that had human hunting bans during certain parts of the winter. And and my understanding is that in, I think it was 2004, they changed the policy so that all of the townships around the park are now protected places. I know that you, my recollection, I mean, I know your research wasn't specifically on that, but, but, you know, do you have any insights as to what the impacts were of, or have been in that whole change in, in the protected area? Yeah, a little bit. It had the desired effect or, or at least a, a positive effect in terms of Eastern wolves in the park. And so it did provide a buffer where, you know, one of the tricky things about conserving wolves and managing wolves is that even with protected areas, they don't respect the boundaries and they don't, you know, they don't stop at the park boundary. And so they have such big home ranges that you have a protected area, but the wolves are going to be spreading out into the unprotected areas and they'll get killed quite quickly if they, if they stray out of the park. And so that buffer certainly gave you a little bit more space to keep a few more wolf packs completely protected. And so, you know, that was helpful. The other thing that it seemed to do is, yeah, in combination with that was allow wolves a bit more space where, as I mentioned in Algonquin, they really kind of dominate the landscape. And we don't know the mechanisms, but whether they're behaviorally excluding coyotes or the conditions just aren't good for coyotes in the park or some combination there, it gives them an area with 
without being killed by humans and where the landscape conditions are suitable, that they don't hybridize as much. And so it's seen to expand that area a bit larger. And so really probably kind of buffered the park to be a, even more of a stronghold for Eastern wolves was kind of the general takeaway. Which is good, right? Uh... Yeah, certainly. And especially because it's really the only place that we find Eastern wolves in any number really in the world. So yeah. Right. Right. I think it's time for a wolf musical interlude. This is a track from Dan Gibson Solitude's Legend of a Wolf CD, and it's called Silent Running.
I was reading, I think it was a 2018 wolf survival endangered endangered series on here's some of the cool things we're going to do in the future. And, and, and one of them was we're going to create these corridors for Eastern wolves to be able to connect with other Eastern wolves in other parts of Ontario. From the work that you did, is that realistic at all that such a thing could even be created, let alone maintained and, and actually have the desired effect? Yeah, it's a complicated question and phenomenon. And I think, you know, not knowing exactly what you saw, but it, it possibly it was from the, the 2018 recovery strategy. Yes, um, that's where it was from. Yeah. So actually, yeah, played a, a fairly big role in advising that process. Not, I didn't write it and not to say that the ideas in it were mine or that, yeah, I necessarily endorsed everything that was in it, but um, I played a, a role in advising the folks that, that drafted it. Um, and I think one thing, so in theory, it's a really good idea to try to connect Eastern wolves. But again, um, the problem is that wolves go so many places and use such big areas that this idea of maybe allowing harvest and, and human caused mortality to be high across the landscape but funneling them through highways so they can get safely back and forth, uh, you know, that that may or may not work. Um, I think it's hard to say. It's, it's getting into a bigger question about how to conserve eastern wolves, but, you know, it may take a bit more than that. I'm not, not sure if we're going to be able to set up corridors that would work perfectly to keep, yeah, eastern wolves move, moving between places that they exist. And again, outside of Algonquin, there are smaller protected areas and there was new protections put in in 2016, but these areas, these other protected areas outside the park are still fairly small. And so the problem remains that even if you have an Easter wolf pack or two using those areas, often they're spreading into the unprotected area. And then they're mm -hmm. of course at risk of being trapped or shot when they step outside. I mean, cause they don't know where the boundary is. In yeah. That yeah. We are trying to, so, I, and I definitely don't mean to debunk the idea of, or the importance or value of wildlife corridors, which I certainly think are valuable. And um, my colleagues and I are actually looking into with, uh, led by Connor Thompson, who's a PhD student with Brent at Trent University now, are looking into dispersal behavior of, of Eastern wolves to see how they move through that landscape with the idea of, can we identify corridors? And even if you know, we can't identify sort of a discrete corridor or wolf highway. Can we identify landscape conditions that are favorable to allow wolves to move freely back and forth between protected areas or just areas that they can exist on the landscape? Right. So during the course of your research, what sense did you have as to how stable the Algonquin Eastern wolf population is? And uh, I think I was somewhere maybe in, even in that same report was reading well the, yeah there's about 150 wolves in the sort of distinct Algonquin area in, in 10 to 12 packs is is that the work that is that true based on more or less I mean I know it's impossible to you know count specifically but but predictively yeah hard to put a, an exact number on it but yeah somewhere between maybe 100 and 200 kind of mature wolves in the, you know, in and right around Algonquin might, might be about right. As far as the stability, so that's that's some work that we're continuing to do and it's taking, for reasons I won't get into, it's taken longer than we had hoped, but we're, we're actually modeling the viability of Eastern wolves in and outside of Algonquin with all the data that we've collected over the years. And I would I would agree that in general, we think that the population in Algonquin is pretty stable. The unfortunate thing is, and we, we don't have the model done yet, so I can't put any certainty with numbers or anything like that, but it certainly doesn't appear that Eastern wolves are very stable or viable outside of the park. It's essentially a source sink situation where wolves survive quite well in the park and again, seem to have stable population dynamics. But when they come out of the park, 
we have found that they end up getting killed pretty quickly. And those that don't get killed and might actually join a pack and actually start breeding, like I said, often that breeding isn't with another Eastern wolf. And then in the, in the very rare situations where it is, because their mortality is fairly high outside of the park, maybe they breed with an Eastern wolf for a year or two and one of the breeders gets killed. And then they pick up a new mate and this time it's you know a hybrid or a gray wolf or, or something like that. So mm-hmm. essentially we do think the population is stable in the park, probably not as viable or possibly not viable at all outside of the park. Mm. What about pup mortality? I mean, it, it in the in the some of the original research. I mean, I know it's hard to, to or at least my sense is it's hard to do research on pup populations. Uh, other than once they get to be older, they don't survive, or they disperse and don't survive. Uh, any insight into how the 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 pup raising process is working? Yeah, so that's a big, actually a big part of what I did and what we did while I was up there. Um, It led to some really exciting and amazing days. Um, So I'll tell you a bit about that. Uh, Ken Mills actually was a master's student just finishing up when I got up there. And his master's had been sort of pioneering this technique of, you know, historically, wolf researchers have been, for, for good reason, have been hesitant to go near dens and disturb pups and and adults at dens. Um, But Ken and his work actually visited the dens, caught the pups, and with the help of veterinarians, implanted radio transmitters, VHF transmitters, in their peritoneal cavities, so inside the actual pups, which then allowed him to track first-year survival and document dispersal events. The technique went really well. It, It sounds crazy. Um, and I continued it during my PhD, but the vets that we work with, to them, it was essentially like doing a neutering. You know, it's just a routine surgery. We didn't have any, we had no complications or infections due to the surgery. No wolves died, no pups died because of the surgeries. And also, you know, there was concern that maybe the, the females would abandon or the pack would abandon the pups, but that didn't happen either. What I found was that actually, you know, the, the female would leave the den as we approached. Um, Sometimes I was even lucky enough to see her walk out of the den right in front of me, which was kind of amazing. And a couple of cases, she'd sort of look back at me and just disappear into the woods. But, you know, often we had collars on them. And what I found is that they would just hang out 30 to 50 meters away, just inside the woods. We would do what we were doing at the den, handle the pups and, and do the surgeries with the transmitters. Female would stay there the whole time. As soon as we were gone, she would come back. And I'm sure she was really shocked. You know, I'm sure she thought the worst and they're here to kill us. Um, Comes back and what do you know? The pups are still alive. She would move the den, usually to a new den right nearby. And they didn't seem to be limited in terms of den sites. Um, And then just keep raising the pups. So obviously we wouldn't have done the technique. I mean, partly out of just animal safety concerns, but um, also from a scientific standpoint, there's no point in tracking survival if you're influencing survival. But we, we learned that we weren't and that we could actually get really good first year pup survival estimates, which was completely novel data for wolves and really critical to our attempts to understand the population, the fitness and the demographic consequences of hybridization. We needed to know how well pups survived to do that. So, Wow, yeah. that's, so what did you learn? In Algonquin, what we learned was that Ken's work was in the eastern portion of Algonquin. Mine was in the western portion, separated by a couple of years. But Ken's work showed really high pup survival, uh, almost unbelievably high pup survival. I, I want to say it was 75% first-year annual survival, which you know is really high for a wild, wild carnivore. Mine showed really low first-year pup survival in the west, more like 25%. Um, and so there was this big disparity in pup survival in eastern and western Algonquin, which we think may have been largely driven by differences in food availability, where mm-hmm. beavers, which are a really important prey species for wolves, or particularly wolves in Algonquin, during spring, summer, and fall, when pups would, are being raised, were quite abundant in the east and, and not abundant at all, pretty scarce in the west. And so we think that played a big role. 
can't discount as well that we might have just happened to catch a couple of good years in the East and a couple of bad years in the West. So difficult to, to know for sure, but the difference was pretty striking. And the implications of that, particularly the low pup survival in the West, is that we certainly hope with our goal of Eastern wolves expanding from a conservation standpoint out of the park to the unprotected landscape surrounding it and increase the numbers of Eastern wolves we have, we hope that Algonquin is a source of dispersing wolves. But if only 25% of the wolves are surviving their first year, that doesn't add up to a lot of dispersal. And so low pup survival probably really inhibits the degree to which Algonquin can act as a source for expansion to the, to the landscape surrounding it. Interesting. Interesting. One of the things that I really found interesting, you know, how they actually work socially and what what were you able to learn about how the social environment of the packs, you know, has either improved or gotten worse or, you know, what things were going on in that area? Yeah, that was one of the most fascinating things about trans for me transitioning from largely studying solitary carnivores like panthers and mountain lions and bears to a social carnivore like like the wolf was this idea of packs and, and social structure and it it kind of gives you a lot of things as a researcher and it also takes some things away and for me one of the first things that kind of caught my attention and I certainly wasn't the, the first one to think of this was just you know we would generally put one collar in each pack and then use that one GPS collar in particular, use that GPS data to infer behavior of the entire pack. And so it certainly crosses your mind, is is that a valid assumption? Does one collar really tell the story of, of the behavior of the whole pack? And I guess what it comes down to is it probably does if the wolves are always together, and it probably doesn't if they're not always together. So I really wanted to know how much time do they actually spend together? But having put generally just one collar in each pack, it was hard to define that. We made some mistakes, and so I think I was catching a new pack, and I put a second collar out, and sometimes it would end up in the same pack. And so Brent and I looked at that question, and I called it cohesion. And so the idea was, how cohesive is the pack? How much time do they spend together? And what we found with GPS telemetry really kind of confirmed what people like Dave Meech and Rolf Peterson and Francois Messier had found with VHF data from earlier studies that they don't always, they're not always together. It's strongly seasonal where they're generally together to a higher degree in the winter, but in the summer, they actually spend more of their time apart. And so in Algonquin, they spend about 25%, 25 to 35% of their time with their pack mate during the summer and more like anywhere from 60 to 75% in the winter. And so I was really looking at that more from a practical standpoint of what does that mean for studying wolves and what assumptions can we make? But once I saw that, that variation, and it was, it confirmed the earlier work, but it showed more variation than had been appreciated. It really got me fascinated as to, well, what drives that? Like, why would wolves, some wolves spend so much time together and some wolves spend so much less time together? Why does it vary across seasons and, and all of the above? And so we've actually used that as a jumping off point to conduct a study worldwide where we, you know, knowing that we had six cases of multiple collars in the same pack in Ontario at the time, and that's what our paper was based on. And I realized if we're really going to understand this, we need to go global and see, you know, I made a few mistakes and ended up with those six packs. I figure if other researchers made some mistakes and we all got together, we could learn a lot from those mistakes. And so we ended up with over 500 individuals, cases where you had multiple collars in the same pack. We expanded it from just wool. We had mostly wolves, but we also included coyotes, jackals, and dingoes from Australia and tried to understand this idea of dynamics within packs of canids and why there's variation in how much time they spend together. So anyway, long-winded way of saying yeah, we've really become fascinated by this question of cohesion. What, what influences the cohesion in the pack? And to your broader question and more important question, we're just starting to understand what drives it. What we don't know is what are the implications. So yeah, does 
a pack that spends less time together, are they less effective at hunting or less effective at breeding and raising pups? Um, the answer is maybe, but we just don't know yet. So I think it's a really important aspect of wolf ecology that is going to open up a lot of new information if we can figure it out. But it's a tricky thing to study. So uh, mm -hmm. yeah, I guess we'll mm -hmm. find out. But that's also connected a little bit, isn't it, to the vo vocal vocalization strategy of where they can identify each other in in significant distances, right? Yeah, potentially. So certainly howling is one of the mechanisms, as you said, by which they find each other within a big territory and, and how they reunite and that sort of thing. So um, that has implications for how cohesive they would be within a pack. Something actually in this, this global paper that we just we have in review now that we just finished, it's pure speculation. But one of the interesting findings we found is that wolves were less cohesive in landscapes that were more disturbed by humans. And so again, this is pretty speculative, but one thing I wondered is if potentially in areas with more human disturbance, even places with wind farms or, or more human activity, if noise pollution could play a role in limiting the effectiveness of wolf howling as far as a means of communication. So. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. <laughs> you know, that's very interesting. I mean, I know we've had, as when I was a Canoe Lake leaseholder, we had lots of conversations about uh, light pollution, but uh, that's interesting. I never thought about uh, wind farms and uh, not that they make a lot of noise, but there's some. That's, <laughs> you know. Yeah, they actually, so not with wolves to my knowledge, although I've talked about it with you know, I was I collaborated a bit with some wolf researchers in Portugal, and when I was visiting there, they had these huge wind farms, and it it actually does create quite a bit of noise. Um, it might inhibit things, not with wolves, like I said, but other species. They've done research and found, like um, I think it was with prairie chickens, who you know emit these booms across the landscape to males do to attract females. That the wind farms can really kind of block that signal and mm -hmm. keep them from communicating the way they normally would. So um, I think it's plausible, but obviously in Algonquin, there's not there's not wind farms. There aren't um, any at the moment. <laughs> so that's good, but there certainly are some areas where wolves are, you know, landscapes that wolves occupy that have a lot of wind farms, and it'd be interesting to know, yeah, what that means for their howling. Yeah, yeah, very interesting. So are there any other insights that you have? Probably one thing I think that fascinates all of us about wolves is their predation and their killing of large prey. And so that's a, a paper we did after I left Ontario, but it's all based on data from that same time period and actually data um, collected by Karen Loveless, who was a master's student alongside Ken just before I got there. And one of the things from Pimlot work and the Burge's work was this idea of eastern wolves largely eating deer and rarely or never not often killing moose um, and that was really jumped on by some of the genetics earlier genetics work too where there were statements made about eastern wolves being white-tailed deer specialists and this smaller eastern wolf being a poor predator of moose and and things like that, but that really wasn't based on any data. Now, certainly, Pimlot and Tiberge had good reason to say that they were largely killing deer because they were. But what's interesting is you go from Pimlot's time to our time, and you see a big transition from a, a system dominated by deer on the landscape to a system that became much more balanced and swung back towards a lot of moose in, in many areas, particularly in Western Algonquin. And so we took a look at that, and what we found. It sort of was a mix of confirming some of what Pimlot and Tiberge found and, and adding some nuance to the story. So certainly I think when Eastern wolves have access to deer, they will kill deer and probably preferentially the way that was suggested. What we found though is places like Western Algonquin where in the winter there, there really are very few deer, they could make a living on killing moose and they were actually quite effective moose predators. And so what we one thing that we documented was you know again this idea that some people would put out there that they're not they're not going to be able to kill moose the way gray wolves would because gray wolves are bigger 
we documented kill rates on moose that were basically fell right in line with what you'd expect for gray wolves at similar moose densities. And so they seem to be just as good as gray wolves at killing moose. And like all wolves, gray wolves are the same way. If you give gray wolves the opportunity to kill deer, I think if you give anyone the chance, like, hey, go take down that deer or go take down that moose, I take the deer every time. You're less likely to get kicked, much easier task. But when you take away the deer, eastern wolves seem to be just as good as, as any other wolf at, at killing them. So that, that was kind of a, an interesting thing, yeah, that we learned. The other thing that we did is directly compare the predation between wolves, coyotes, and hybrids. And what we found essentially what you'd expect that I mentioned earlier that wolf, uh, coyotes were capable of killing adult moose occasionally. Um, and they're actually quite good predators of white-tailed deer in Ontario. But as expected, we found that wolves killed all ungulates and moose in particular at higher rates than coyotes did, and that the coyote diet was more variable. They also ate garbage uh, to a high degree in some packs. Um, we didn't, we couldn't really document the smaller prey, but presumably they're eating a lot more uh, snowshoe hares and, and smaller prey like that. So the implications of that finding, I think, are pretty important because there are some folks that feel in Ontario, let's not worry too much about what canid we have out there. Who cares if it's a wolf, a coyote, or a hybrid? You know, as long as we have some large canid that's probably filling the same ecological role. Well, if they're killing very different things at different rates, that's not the same ecological role. And our work certainly suggests that Eastern wolves do fill a unique ecological role in the Algonquin system, and not one that's gonna be easily replaced by even larger Eastern coyotes. And so when you come back to the idea of like, why do we conserve wolves? It, you know, you can fall back on, well, that, that's what used to be here. And that's not very satisfying. But to me, if you can think that they play a unique ecological function and one that might be important for that ecological community, that's something that's worth con conserving. And our work certainly suggests that they play a very different role than coyotes do. And I feel like that that's a role that we want to conserve on the landscape and particularly in a, in a place like Algonquin, where if it's overrun by coyotes, they're not going to have the same effect on the local prey populations and things will be a little, little less balanced probably. Right, right. What's your, I know we didn't talk about it at all, and I know it, it gets mentioned a fair bit here and there, which is about the impacts of lumbering. Until the park got serious about the firefighting activities, uh, you, there would be big swatches of Algonquin that was either, you know, be destroyed by fire or or lumbering would go in and clear cut everything that stood. But that encouraged the regeneration of browse, which in turn attracted deer, which in turn attracted wolves. But today the forest is really mature. I mean, the area around my cottage has lots of great trees, but nothing below the canopy. Yeah, it's, it's an interesting situation where right as you mentioned historically with you know almost sort of wild west logging in the park and and certainly clear cutting that really opened up the landscape and we think that played a role in in really allowing probably coyotes to move in and coyotes tend to like more open country um, when you have logging to that extent, you tend to have much more earlier successional habitat that'll support smaller prey populations, things that coyotes can eat. So the return to mature forest in the park is certainly one possible reason why wolves seem to be able to dominate Algonquin and not do so outside of the park. Mm. So I tend to think that mature forest in the park would certainly tilts the scales towards moose, but also probably towards wolves, is probably a good thing from in terms of managing hybridization in a more from a landscape perspective than sort of a hands-on perspective and so yeah i think you know the other the other obvious element there in difference is that uh, wolves were killed inside the park until about the same time period and so that combination of open landscape and human-caused mortality probably allowed coyotes to thrive more and at least penetrate the park but this return and this protection of wolves combined with um, no more clear cutting in the park and limit, limiting to selective cuts has probably favored uh, favored wolves and, and maybe allowed them to really keep Algonquin as a stronghold. 
you know, the, obviously, as you know, there is still quite a bit of logging in the park. It's done with selective cuts rather than clear cuts. And that might kind of let you have it both ways where it does open things up a bit and, and maybe provide some habitat for deer, but um, doesn't kind of knock the whole thing down and let coyotes run amok. Well, I think the good news has been that the that there's far more attention to that than there ever has been. Uh, and, and that's a good thing uh, yeah. in the end, I think. Um, but as we all know, you know, Algonquin is a multi-purpose park. So <laughs> that just creates conflicting policy directions sometimes. And that's just kind of the way it is and has always been. So we yeah. have to live with that in many ways. Well, thank you so much, John. This has been fabulously interesting. All kinds of things I didn't know before I uh, have learned, which I think uh, most of my audience, our audience will appreciate. And uh, so thank you so much for joining me today. Yeah, thanks for inviting me. It's been, uh, been a really fun trip down memory lane. So always fun to talk about wolves in Algonquin. I hope you found my discussion with Dr. John Benson about his wolf research from 2007 to 2011 as fascinating as I have. In my next episode, I'm excited to share that I'll be joined by John and Mary Thaberge. We'll have a wide-ranging discussion, I hope, of both the impacts of their research 20 years later and some of their insights into the future of wolves and wolf wildlands beyond Ontario. Oh, and don't forget, all of my books, as well as those by my friend and fellow Algonquin Park human historian, Roderick Mackay, are all available through the Friends of Algonquin Park bookstores and at Amazon. On my website, www.algonquinparkheritage.com, on the Pics and Vids page, I've posted selections from my library of historical photographs of people and places that I talk about in these podcasts, which I hope you will find of interest. As I mentioned before, I also strongly encourage everyone to lend their financial support to the Wildlife Research Station, whose information can be found on their website, www.algonquinwrs.ca, and consider buying an Algonquin Defining Moments t-shirt, coffee cup, or other merch by clicking on the Gifts and Gears buttons on my website. If you have any ideas of topics that you think would be fun to explore or just want to share your sentiments about my podcasting efforts, please feel free to email me at clemsong at algonquinparkheritage.com.